the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by Vipla, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. I'm Jess Noonan, and I'm joined by Peter Jewell, and this is the Planning Exchange Podcast. Today, we're incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to speak with Peter Seema and Cameron Alderson. Peter Seema is a man who will need very little introduction for many of our listeners. He was the former CEO of the Victorian Planning Authority for 10 years, the CEO for Fed Square during its building and construction phase, and has been the CEO of a number of different cities, including Sydney. These days, Peter has a portfolio of work for a number of large companies and government, and is putting all of his knowledge into publication with the release of his book, Breaking Point, which was released in 2019. Cameron Alderson, who you may remember from PX6, who was one of our very early interviewees, Cameron is a director of Canopy Homes and prior to that held senior positions with both Mervac and Stockland in Victoria. Cameron is also a board member of Vipla, who sponsor our podcast, and has been a huge supporter of the podcast from the very beginning. Welcome to the show, Peter and Cam. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jess. Peter. And Peter. That's right. I know it's going to get very confusing. It is. Multiple Peters. Peter 1, Peter 2. PJ and PS. Now, Peter, you've, uh, you've got your book, Breaking Point. Can you just tell me a bit of your motivation for doing that? I think it came from working in the industry for uh, many years, both in local government and also the Victorian Planning Authority and other things like Fed Square, that you can see a lot of decisions that are being made that are, I think the term is suboptimal, uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And um, my bottom line is that I just don't think that enough of us know enough about cities to really... Uh, speak to government and talk to the decision makers about what we really need as a city. And even government sometimes gets tries to do so much that they sort of uh, try and do everything and they do it all quite badly. Why, why do these misunderstandings about cities arise, do you think? Well, for a lot of reasons. I think that, um, two, cities are very complicated things and everybody always seeks to find simple answers and it doesn't work like that. And the second thing is everybody comes from their own um, narrow focus, vested interests, if you like, and a lot of people look after things. If I live near a railway station, I want more trains. If I live miles out and there's no railway stations, I want better freeways. Cities are composed of people and we've all got our own views about things, so it's this complicated mixture. Peter, um, you signed my book. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's all about the future. And thanks for caring, Peter. And quite, I reflected on those words because I did enjoy the book. I, I thought it was rooted or grounded in, in hard data that we probably don't want to get lost in today. That might be for another conversation because there's some excellent myth-busting data in there that I'd encourage all listeners to read. But we might have another conversation to dive into some of that. But if we could just stay high level with this vision that you have written about, about a polycentric localised metropolis that is Melbourne's future. Can you put that in other words? I mean, some people know what polycentric means, some people don't know what polycentric means. Maybe in your words, what does that mean? 
I must admit I've struggled with the terms polycentric comes from, you know, the German cities growing and merging into each other or, you know, around uh, the San Francisco basin. Um, Localised, to me, is probably a better term. What it means is that people don't have to travel halfway across the town just to do the things that they need to do because that's what kills in, in terms of congestion and it also is building up a society where people that are close to everything, that is the inner suburbs, get all the services yet everybody pays all the bills. And the people who are probably most in need of the support are those that are actually paying the people least in need. And our city is becoming more and more a two-tier society. So that's inequity. And I just don't think that's healthy. So that's inequity in the city that we need Absolutely. to tackle. Absolutely. And it's increasing. Mm. And, and if, if there's some strategies in there to implement... you particularly around how people move around this city and, and perhaps where jobs are located and how we use roads that we have. Do you want to expand on that and what that might mean for the, the future of Melbourne? Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's nothing particularly new in some ways. Um, we've always been talking about having 20-minute cities or 20-minute neighbourhoods or something like that going back for decades. Um, the trouble is when the rubber hits the road, we don't do it. And where the rubber hits the road is usually just before an election where someone comes along and uh, wishes to launch a new project that looks sexy is going to get some votes in the short term. So we also have people pandering to special interest groups, whether they be um, drivers or Public Transport Users Association or something like that. What we need to do is to actually work out what sort of city we want. And the one that I'm talking about is one where people can travel a reasonably short distance to get a good job, to get their kids to school, to actually go and buy their groceries, not necessarily by car. Certainly, uh, we're not going to ever really be able to do it in my lifetime in Melbourne because so much of Melbourne is just not served by rail. Uh, and buses seem to be somewhat out of favour, which is, in my view, a bit of a shame. Uh, but I think that it's very going to be very difficult for us to try and change the nature of our city. How often do you hear someone say, oh, we should be like Copenhagen or something like that? Or we should be like central... We should like Paris. And central Paris is really interesting. It's really, really nice. I wouldn't want to live there particularly, but it's a really good space. So once you get outside the periphery, it's a hellhole. And we don't have that. We have a place where the whole of the city is good for living, but we are increasingly um, putting more and more of our effort into the inner city than we are to the outer parts. So are we talking about a maturity of, of approach to city planning, Peter, that you know, a, a lot of things are fashionable, but they're not maybe suited? Is there something in that, do you think? Absolutely. The, well, you know as well as I do, you're a planner, you know all the stuff that you were taught in lectures in, you know, 1912, like me, and the, the, the you know, the... Uh, you, sound the like <laughs> you sound like <laughs> Jess, Peter. <laughs> the, well, I could be tired of the same brush. Um, but those people, a lot of those people who were, you know, doing, when I was doing my Master of Urban Planning, still doing the same lecture, and it wasn't particularly right then, and it's certainly even less correct now. Um, I think fashion's got a lot to play with, and that's a big shame. So it should be fact-based, and that's why I wrote the book, Falling Back on Facts and Reality, and also about falling back on what's not looking after one privileged group, but looking after the 85% or the 95%. I mean, some of the... Some of the um ideas in there I think are quite simple um, but maybe hard to execute like making travelling the opposite way peak hour on East Link or the, our City Link yeah. for free 
and therefore encouraging businesses to locate where people can travel against the traffic for free by car. Um, as an example, I suppose then in the current, if you look at the, I mean, we are in an infrastructure boom, like probably not seen collectively when you aggregate them all, probably ever. And if you actually start, in your opinion, and based on where this, this vision is heading, there's some of those projects that you see as being heading in the right direction and others uh, more just uh, probably not not supporting the f- diabolical. Do you want to do you want to um, well, elaborate? Look, I, I don't, don't want to go through this. I don't want to. The purpose of the exercise is not to pick a fight with politicians because basically they're doing their thing. There's a whole issue about why politicians decide to do what they do. And we can talk about that if you like. But there's a couple of projects that are terrific that's been done by this current Labor government. Uh, and obviously the level crossing program is really good for the suburbs and it's good for trains but it's even better for for business movements around the suburbs so people can move um through uh ormond without being stuck on the lines for you know sort of 10 minutes and things like that so that's a great project um i think the the in some ways much maligned um uh suburban rail loop is something we really need because it's actually not a road or a train project it's a town planning project so it's actually about building these nodes where they can actually not only get into the cbd but actually putting strength going from cheltenham to monash and that's that's a big step forward the trouble is if we're not careful we'll rely on rail which is to me really 19th century technology and there's a lot more stuff just around the corner in the lifetime of this of this project i was also i also think about history peter looking back i mean melbourne had that outer suburban rail loop once before in the 1880s and that was that was pulled up and i i'm very cautious about the notion of that suburban rail line you put but i i I get get what you're saying jess Mm. So your, your idea, though, Peter, is that buses are probably one of the huge bits of infrastructure that we're really missing at the moment, particularly in the outer suburbs. There's also, you know, the electric scooters, there's trackless trams, all those other things coming on board. How do you see them really unlocking those areas? I think that um, we're going to see in the future a multiplicity of different modes uh, around the issue will be not so much the mode. I actually think that's easy. I think the hard bit is the reservation that it travels on. So that if you want to have that reservation, let's say take for example the um, uh, the uh, suburban rail loop. It's actually setting aside the reservation, some above ground, some below ground, in a sensible way so that you don't have to do it all on day one but you can roll it out over 30 years or something like that and take into account that you know all the best new train lines in the world are probably going to be rubber wheeled like the Grand um, Metro in Paris which is you know automated rubber wheeled and then of course you've got people you know these people talking about trackless trams and I never quite worked out what the difference between that and a large bus is but there we go the um I think they're just large vehicles but having the road reservation and underground reservation design for a multiplicity of vehicles is really important otherwise we're just fencing ourselves into a sort of a dead end, which I think is a mistake. But the project itself is really good. There are a couple of other projects, I won't go into detail because you know what I'm not talking about. There's one particular project that Victoria's got which is um, running into problems at the moment, but that's a terrible project. Okay, so um, 
the suburban rail really could be a catalyst for this polycentric localised city. Um, what other cities, and it's always dangerous to compare cities because people take it literally, but what other cities do you see that might give us clues to this vision, this future vision of Melbourne? Or aspects of cities? It may not be the totality of a city. Virtually anyone. Most other cities of our size around the world are nowhere near as nuclear as we are. Okay, So you start to look at things, even Sydney. You know, you've got Chatswood, you've got this three CBDs thing with the Aeropolis, isn't that a terrible term, and, and Parramatta. And Parramatta's beginning to fulfil the promise that has been talked about for 30 years. Uh, and those sort of things... But those sort of things will come to pass, but you need to put the infrastructure in and you need to make it more attractive than the CBD. So every time we go and put a new metro or something like that in the CBD, all we're doing is making sure that more people will leave their dormitory suburbs and come into the CBD and jam up Swanson Street even more than it is today. But Peter, isn't that just the old district centre policy from like the 80s that we had? I think there was probably more potent in the 80s than it is right, today. They built Box Hill and a whole lot of things. So all, the, you know, the, all, all those places were identified yep. back in the 1980s, the Border Works Plan or something like that. Sorry, listeners, this is going back in ancient history now. But we're just reinventing things we've already done, but we didn't execute them. Is that the issue? I think that um, if you end up with a a planning system that has to change direction 180 degrees every five years or the change of government, you're in a lot of trouble. Government, you know, cities just grow organically and they just continue to grow and they grow on what you put in the past. And we had, you know, like Box Hill was a great innovation in this day. Uh, and um, the, the previous Labor government spent a lot of time and money trying to do something with Dandenong. I personally think they did a few things right and they did some things incorrectly because now it's more expensive to put an office in Dan than on that is in adjoining areas. So how, how clever is that? So the um, I think that our cities grow organically on top of the things that went before and we shouldn't have 180 degree changes unless the circumstances change 180 degrees. But I'd like to lead us sort of into who the beneficiaries of this vision, but perhaps just to get that, get the grounds of that going. There's a few examples that you asked me and you, I think you asked Jess as well, is the free tram in the city a good idea or not? And I didn't, I'd never thought of it. Remembering a lot of our listeners are out of Melbourne, so you need to sometimes explain some of these things too. Well, we've got a free tram network in our CBD. It didn't used to be free, it became free. And I've, you asked me the question and both Jess and I answered the same way, didn't we? Mm-hmm. What did we... That it's a great idea. It's yep, a great, great initiative. Idea. Great initiative. And I said it was a terrible idea. You said it was a terrible That's idea. That's because Peter, the two of Peter you Peter two from said it was a terrible cloth. idea. And Peter one said it was a terrible <laughs> idea. Peter one said it's worse than a terrible idea. It's probably one of the worst decisions I've ever seen. And the least successful. Which I was really shocked about. So oh, was it? it'd be really, oh, really valuable for you to I want to bring this back to equity why. and beneficiaries. So right, maybe well, expand on your Just quickly running down it. So, number one, it was. Uh, put forward by the Napthine government in its dying days to actually get a few votes. No other reason. Um, it was immediately matched by the Labor Party because they didn't want to lose votes. So nobody got any political benefit out of it. The second thing it does is people don't walk anymore for so there's interest in active, active travel. If you want to go down Collins Street, there's everybody's jammed themselves onto the tram because it's free. Um, 
And as well as that, as well as not having any activity, the trams are absolutely full. I'm sure Yarra trams hate the free tram zone because they're basically much slower than it used to be getting around the city. Uh, and it's if you, if you caught a tram from my old office in, in Collins Street any lunchtime, it was horrible and you couldn't get on half the time. So that was terrible. Um, they lost, I think the figure is 250 million bucks a year. I think that's right. Um, I might be wrong. Um, the uh, capitalise that. That's a lot of money. That is. That is. That and could be spent. Yeah. In the burbs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And and the other thing is the people that are paying for that live in the burbs. Mm. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. So the, the people who don't get any services are subsidising fat cats like Cameron, mm. who you know oh, flitting, <laughs> flitting, oh, around, on flitting, flitting, flitting around the city in their free tram zone. Actually, you don't need, don't even work in the city. But the um, uh, the uh, so that that's another thing wrong with it. There's about four or five other ones, but I can't quite think of them off the top of my head. Well, in your book, you talked about that's one good example. You talked about art centres and and you know, all sorts of expenditure of the state having to inevitably, especially through I guess the '90s and the '00s, and it just landed right here. And I guess there's probably reasons at the time why it happened, but on reflection, perhaps that could have been better spread to to sort of underpin this idea of of a dispersed city where there's you know really great amenity in other spots of our of our metropolis the people who live in the inner areas are louder than people that live in the and boots. they control the media they control and they the media control what people and they're all read they're all the sort of to. the you know all the trendy people and all the cool people uh, live there the uh, um, I live on the edge of the inner city so I'm sort of halfway one foot in another camp so the um, uh, I think that if we listen to those people too much, we lose our way. And look, I will say that while in the early days of the first term of the Labor government, a lot of their decisions were about inner city, but they've actually changed quite a bit of that and they are putting a lot more emphasis, you know, with the um, uh, with the level crossing program, removal program, and with the um, uh, suburban rail loop. They are actually having a good focus on these other things. But some of their other things haven't been, for the life of me, I can't work out why we're doing them. So staying on, on beneficiaries then, um, uh, SOS, the S, the, the, such a powerful group ever since the, the, the Kennett you, government you got rolled. You explain that, Cam, the, 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 to SOS. Save Our Suburbs is a, is a local lobby group uh, that founded, I guess, in, what was it, 1999, was its, was its heyday when um, preliminary final day. The Kennett government got rolled by an unknown Steve Brax, and they've been a powerhouse ever since. Now, this polycentric, localised city vision—is it good for them or bad for them? How would they see this, and how or how should they see this? Well, depending on who you talk to, there is no one thing called SOS. There's a whole lot of different people. Yeah. Basically, there are a bunch of people who don't want change, uh, and nobody wants change. I don't want the people next to my house to knock the house down, and I have to put up with all the trucks. It's just a normal human emotion. Government has to somehow or another stand a bit beyond that stuff. Uh, and is it in the interests of people living in um, Burundara, which is a well-off middle-ring suburb, uh, to have more jobs locally? Well, of course it is. Um, is it in their interest to have more offices near where they live? Well, probably not. Uh, but there's got to be some trade-offs here, and government has to do things. So I one breath people will be saying... Most town planners will say, oh, we want much more density in the, in the inner and middle ring. Uh, 
But then when it comes, push comes to shove, the politicians aren't going to do it because it's not a top popular thing. But we need to actually have a program where we say, this is what we're going to do and it's going to happen progressively. And it sort of is happening progressively. And it's look, I'm not particularly worried about that. I think that there was a lot of high-rise stuff going up, particularly um, around Franklin Street, uh, which is in the CBD, and around South Yarra and Forest Hill, which to me is decidedly average and at worst might be the slums of the future. Am I allowed to say that? Oh, well, no, because I had a project or the, two in the, there. The, so but not your one, much. all the other ones. <laughs> but the, the, they, they, you know, they, there's too much density there and they ha- mm. are not planned for the density. There is no master plan to say where they go to. But Because I, 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 I reflected on this question that I've just asked and I, I would actually see, I would argue that it's in the interest of that traditional SOS group that we've referred to, it's in their interest to encourage this because it might take the pressure off them. I mean, I, the areas that I'm imagining, if you if, if the parallel, if the if there's the Chatswoods and the Parramatta's, uh, you know, in Brisbane they've got Spring, Springfield these days, which is emerging as a major, it's uh, a it's, well, it's, it's 19Ks out, so, you know. So is Glen Waverley. So it's not that far out. Um, so, yeah, it's Glen Waverley. What are the parallels? It's obviously Box Hill. It's already happening. Is, is it the Monash Precinct? Is it on the back of the suburban rail loop? It's, it's Clayton South, Huntingdale. Um, so we need the to be non-traditional, more non-traditional mm. locations that we wouldn't associate with urban, you know, cool, dense, mixed-use places. Well, the, the big one in Melbourne, of course, is the Monash Precinct, which has got a number of those areas you just referred to. And the problem with Monash is it's got some incredibly sophisticated stuff and a wonderful, huge university. But at five o'clock, someone turns the lights out in Monash and everybody goes home. Uh, and um, it, it, will cha- it is changing and it will change. But if you want to employ young, trendy, high-tech types, particularly computer-type people and things like that, they want to be in Collingwood. And the reason they want to be in Collingwood because Collingwood has certain attributes that they want. The problem is we're not making those attributes in Monash. And it's not going to happen unless we start turning the clock around and saying, yes, this we need to have this. We need to have more mixed use. We need to have more areas for, you know, for the sorts of things that people want. But, I mean, it can, it, as a vision for the future, I mean, Collingwood's a good example. I mean, even the city, you turned the lights off. It was, it was the late 80s, early 90s, you turned the lights off. I remember going to Fish Tank. It was a nightclub, you know, uh, top end of Swanston Street, and you'd go through the middle of the city. It was just no lights, dark, walk up Swanston Street and get to Fish Tank. And it was great there, but there was nothing there. Absolutely. Now, that's 1990, 1990, 1988. Now, Collingwood, only 10, 15 years ago, there was nothing like what it is now. So it only takes Can 10, I, 15 uh, years uh, for this personal change. Personal observation, I, I, I'm actually spending a lot of time in Collingwood living there. And uh, the noise stops at a certain time. But I don't particularly like it. <laughs> I don't particularly like a lot of the grime that you have there and that everything gets tagged and everything gets... Like I had a delivery truck the other day I used... I left it overnight in the street. It got tagged. So there's a lot of downsides. But going back to Monash, I think if you make it affordable for that, not everyone works in tech. Lots of people, most people don't. They're all aspirational. They want to get their foot in the door in the property market. Maybe it's good housing out there. And Jess, we always talk about demonstration projects, don't we? And the lack thereof. 
to, to inform people about what can be done. You, you think, you're thinking like the lend leases in the world and something like that? Uh, uh, it, well, I guess the question is how quickly. So the lend leases of the world can't wait 10, 15 years for their investment to come into fruition. So, you know, how do you lay the foundations, which we probably are, and it's amazing. It's almost a bit like the tipping point, isn't it? Things a... change quickly and people never predict it. Correct. We always say it's going to go on like this forever and we plan it here. I've got a linear extrapolation of what's happened in the last five years and it's going to continue. No, it's not. It'll all change. And I think that one of the things that will drive change will be congestion, both on public transport and, and in cars. And affordability? Affordability is already there. The Well, it's fine. Rich people move into East Melbourne, you know. the, the They don't move to, you know somewhere out in the outer burbs so we've already got this class we have a class ridden city but not on the basis of what school you went to but by where you own your house but it's, it's, it's interesting isn't it because if you take it seems to be way our city works is it goes to the center and it slowly bleeds out the if you like that urbanness that is melbourne it bleeds out from the city so you know the trickle east, out of east melt trickle out you know, guess to collingwood guess to brunswick you know, it's going to Thornbury. It's just going out on a lineal way. Is there a way to skip that process and make a catalyst? So Box Hill's probably the best example we've got running right now. The the amount of money the government spent making Box Hill what it is today back in Dick Hamer's time was huge. And I know that the then planning minister... Uh, was grizzling about it 20 years later about how much money it cost him to actually do it. Is that it. right? Yeah, and the the uh, it actually did do something. It was actually quite good. Then it's sort of nothing happened for 20 years, and it's got it. The government has to really look at it again now. But now buildings are springing yeah. up left, right, and centre. Right. What, what about Dandenong and Werribee? Oh, I think I think that Dandenong is can be so terrific. It's got to be a major hub, uh, and the government did the previous Labor government. 15 years ago, I never invested. I think it was $300 million to do two things. They they teased up the main drag, which was uh, stuff Street, and it looks good. And then they built a large building, which seems to be partly occupied by bureaucrats. And it's a beautiful building. But what they didn't, what they needed to do was find a way of making it economic for people to build offices there. And then, of course, council goes and leaves their parking meters in the main street. So everyone parks over in the plaza, where it's free, and no one goes to the main street, so you're full of $2 shops, and no one's going to build an office here because they've got to pay back the levies for the buildings that were put in place. And this might have seemed a really clever idea for a bureaucrat 15 years ago, but of course they've made it more expensive. So you can make it affordable for offices. Yeah, you, you actually say, so you want to do something? Go and make it work. And the state government, uh, and this is something the Treasurer did a few years ago, which I think is terrific, for regional cities introduced a lower rate mm. for payroll tax, down mm. to half. Mm. Uh, and um, I'd like to see that go down to nothing for the for the regional areas. I read that in your book. Yeah. I didn't even know. Yeah, uh, and it's it sort of, that's for, imagine you're running a large, you want to set up a new large uh, call centre or something, where you don't necessarily need lots and lots of really specialised skills because you're drawing from a more dispersed population base. Um, well, if the majority of your costs are staff costs, well, a 50% reduction in power actually does make a difference. So why aren't we trying a few of these things? Rather than simply spending money on new infrastructure, which 
you know, there's that old saying, you can't build... free tram subsidies. free tram subsidies. You can't build your way out of congestion. If you want to put a free public transport subsidy in, put it in contraflow, getting people going out of the city, out to Monash or something like that. Don't put it something right in the middle of the city, which just makes the central part of the city more attractive and forces the suburban areas just to become boring, dormitory suburbs. You've got to do something about it. And the council's really quite complacent. I've been there. I've been a CEO of a suburban council. Because uh, the forces that work on you when you're the CEO of a council, you are defensive more often than you're trying to create things that might create problems for you. Well, I think we need more people out there that are willing to give it a bit of a go, both councillors and senior officers. But you know the, you know the politics inside a council. It's, sure. it's very defensive and you've got the councillors and you what's in the media and you need to you're not. You're worried about letters to the editor, sort of thing, aren't you? It's it's not always like that. I, th- I think that I've seen towns councils that were into those negative modes come out with some really good policy things. A bit like the premier did with the state government. He came out and said, you know, Dan's building his new state, and everybody voted him in a landslide. Mind you, I don't think Matthew Guy did him any harm. Was probably the worst campaign I've ever seen. But the the the. Um, uh, you know, he turned around something and turned these things into positives. Now, whether he can runs out of money before, you know, it all stops us another whole issue. Right. There's a concept I wanted to bring up that I've just come across, and that is opportunity deserts. You know, you have food deserts. That's yeah. the concept. You don't have any... And Jess, you're always about public health and not having suitable food things. But in a lot of the suburbs now, there's opportunity deserts where there's no jobs, the schools are lousy... Mm. The kids don't get a start. There's no enterprise. Uh, are you worried that those places are developing in sort of the Melbourne metropolitan area and other West, other Australian cities? Absolutely. The, um, uh, we've always had areas that are they're usually poor areas. Okay, so people don't like that word very much, but it's true. So you go and look at the areas where we have the largest unemployment and. Brimbank and Broadmeadows and places like that. I think they're the two top ones. Um, the uh, uh, th- they need help in terms of things happening. So they need great public transport. They need councils getting on, off the tail, which I know the city of Hume is trying to do to to make the area change. And to be perfectly frank, Broadmeadows is beginning to gentrify. Glenroy already has. So the um, the these can. Things can be done, but instead of building Metro 2 or something, take half that money and spend it building in the things you need, putting in proper bus services, making the centre of Broadmeadows look just bloody fantastic, you know, and, and making having more mixed uses so people can have different sorts of, uh, you know, I can have my office and I can have a house next door or so yeah, or something. Uh, why, why shouldn't those people have enjoy beautiful places? Like what we, about the the actual sort of breakdown of uses of those sorts of centres? I'm thinking greenfield centres or even regional centres. Has there been any analysis, um, even at your time um, at the VPA, Peter, about who's actually using those places? Are they people that live nearby? Are they pe- are they attracting a broader radius of people into those places? Or do you have any uh, clues the, on the that? figures that I've seen? I actually wouldn't mind seeing some more of that sort of stuff, but the figures that I've seen show that they're pretty broadly spread. People do come from distances, but obviously there's going to be a much stronger focus on people who live locally, particularly for less well-paid jobs. But are they providing the diversity of jobs that we're talking about or are they sort of providing the, you know, um, like you're saying, the $2 shops and the supermarkets and 
that level? Are they really providing that really commercial kind of corporate level of employment? Well, the answer is generally no. Um, How do we get that Because, (laughs) well, um, we, we make sure we do things that make businesses want to go there. You know, you know, 85% of all jobs are provided by private enterprise. Okay? So if you really want to solve the private the job problem, you have got to bring private enterprise there. So why would somebody want to move to Broadmeadows rather than to Hawthorne well, or, let's say, Collingwood? Uh, well, the answer's got to be I can park my car there, there's good public transport for the buses, there's a good workforce there. There's actually some really good restaurants there because ever since Hume Council and the government have come through and made the area incredibly attractive, they've opened that new restaurant there and there are things going And if you want to use an example of something where they've actually done it right, and that's the old Essendon Airport, Essendon Fields, which um, just won the UDIA award for... Um, uh, it's a few, a few a month or so ago, what they've done is they have made they've got the best supermarket in Melbourne. They've got lots of childcare. They've got the new Hyatt Hotel. They've got several large business headquarters there, uh, and they're growing very quickly because they're doing it right. And also, they're not subject to planning controls as we know it. Helps. <laughs> they're not subject to the typical planning controls. They are in a, and they do it very responsibly. I know that, but they're in a sort of a free thinking zone, if I could put it they that way. Ha- they have to comply to some extent, not comply, but they have to coordinate yes. with with local government. Uh, but I don't think local government really pokes its nose in too hard into those areas. And it's it's private, you know, it's all owned by the same private enterprise people, so it's in their interests to make it look beautiful. Whereas when you... Most shopping centres and things like that, they're not like that. They're particularly the traditional ones. They're... The public space is controlled by councils, and believe it or not, not a lot of shopkeepers vote all that much. It's mostly residents who vote, so they tend to get the priorities put on things, a whole range of things, but not necessarily making um, Auburn Road, Elwood look absolutely fantastic. So, Peter, from a government perspective, forever trying to balance budgets, mm-hmm. this new vision for Melbourne, it'd be cheaper for them wouldn't it absolutely but perhaps not as glamorous in the in the execution if if you look at you know one one of the things i did do in the book was i was brave enough to actually go and say well here are some things you can do about it because how many times you've read a book complaining about things and things then when you actually find when you read it say well what do you want to do and then there's no answer which i find absolutely disgraceful the point of anybody that's that's serious so we wrote down a lot of things and you know there are things like Working from home, which works for some industries, not for others. Um, you know, if we can get rid of 10% off the roads one day, well, that's, you know, a huge amount of improvement in, in, in the capacity of the road system. You know, it's like driving to work in January. It's great, you know, because there's 10% or something of the traffic's off the roads. Um, there's a the number... School holidays has that effect. School holidays, I like that. Um, the, uh, there's a whole pile of things like that, but the government's not going to... Um, get a whole pile of votes and something that's going to get on the front page of the paper by saying, hey, guys, we're going to clean up the Box Hill Shopping Centre. So, so this You know, that's just not going to do it. So we have a problem in how people see government expenditure and how people know what needs to be done. That's why I've written the book. It's only one small thing. I'm not going to change everybody overnight, more so pity. But if we can have a more informed debate, 
about things and saying, hang on, don't put in that tram zone. It's stupid. I believe the Premier's come out and canned the extension of it the other day. He did it on ABC Radio, I think, which is a jolly good thing. But the, the it's I think that's right. Um, uh, we need to have a better discussion about it. So on that, um, it's a good segue because unplanned, but you and I started out a conversation, oh, I'd only be a month ago, I don't, I don't know where we caught up, but I said, you really should start a think tank because you're passionate about this. And there's a lot of us who are. And you have. So we have, I guess. Um, HowToBuildACity.com is, is, is a platform that's emerging. Do you want to talk about your, what your hopes are for HowToBuildACity.com? Well, as of yesterday, I've actually got it working um, <laughs> up to some extent, but I can't say I'm the greatest whiz on uh, some of those things. Uh, so the site is HowToBuildACity.com. It's one word, all lowercase. And the aim of the exercise is to make it a platform for anybody who wants to put forward some ideas, either by comments to other articles or by writing articles themselves, or podcasts, because I want to link through to, obviously, to your podcast. Um, the, uh, so it's, it's a place where people can actually get out and put forward something. You know, I, I believe we have a problem in the way that we uh, charge, you know, for um, a land tax or something like that, a topic that might be close to someone's heart. My only conditions are that they will be moderated. It's not going to be one of those sites where people come in and sort of use bad language about people. That, that'll just get the exit button. And also, I probably have a bit of a requirement that the um, any articles put in have to be reasonably factually based and vaguely sane. Okay? <laughs> now, I don't have too high expectations here. <laughs> yeah, but the, it, it has, it's meant to be quite open. So that if anybody who's listening to this has an interest, please go and have a look at how to build a city. There's no money in it for me. There's basically it's no ads. It's there's no charges. It's a place to think about the city. Yeah. And, and what do you hope it could get, achieve? Well, where it came from was after writing the book, Okay, a lot of I've got terrific feedback from the book. I've never had anyone criticise really what's in it. Yeah, I'll mark that in a minute. But the 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 trouble is you've done it, and then there's the so what factor. Well, the so what factor is well, if you're going to actually get out and do something about it, you need to have a more ongoing discussion. How do we lift conversations? You know, I talk to academics and I talk to people, and they they're also terribly narrowly focused on their little topic. And they think that's the entire world, but cities are far more broadly based. So as you know, with this group we've set up, they have all sorts of people with very, very long experience and coming from quite different directions, uh, which actually puts a really powerful group together. Uh, sort of strengthening the public commons in terms of the discussion on... So, well, that's what we try to do, Jess. Peter, is your idea as well that the media might be able to use and access this information to help inform? Yes, yes, absolutely. Is that the, part of the, it? Uh, yes, we've, we've got had good coverage on various radio channels, ABC with John Fain. I haven't caught up with Virginia yet, but the, 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 we, we do a bit of that. I'd like to see them being better informed about things. And there are people who... One of the problems with a lot of the media is they do tend to be very central city and they don't see any further than... South Bank or North Fitzroy. Unless so, there's an issue. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to see far more commentators living in Cranbourne. Uh, and and I, I have a general view that everybody who's on the media, everybody's in government, should spend a month of every year driving taxis. So they just get to see how normal people live and what the real issues are. And we're pretty well a long way away from that. 
Thank you to Song Bowden Planners, who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Peter, planning policy seems to be similar to what it was in the 1980s with a little bit of tinkering. But the society we live in now is completely different from the 80s in terms of demographic makeup, workforce participation, uh, technologies, how people move around. Is it time to reset planning policy to catch up to where we are and even put planning policy in front of where we are now? I think so. Uh, to some extent, things change and in some ways they don't change a great deal. The road that I live in was built in... 1905 or something still works well as a road. Uh, but other things don't work so well. We have climate change, we have different forms of vehicles. And of course cities are like, um, they swing. So when Melbourne was first designed, people walked to work. And then um, you had cars in the 30s and 40s and early 50s, but they'd only have one car for the family. So you had to have local shops, so the shops were all localised. And they're the ones that are doing better today than that. Then you went where we had two cars and everybody drove their car to, you know, to Chadston or something like that. And then there was this huge, this city emptied out. Then there was a swing back into the city and, you know, uh, which has been very successful. Um, I would have thought that the swing probably has gone too far and we need to now go and say, well, hang on, what we were doing with those suburban centres in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s has got to be revisited because we've got to make all of our major suburban centres to have the same quality of environments we have in the CBD. And that's what I'd like to see do. And that's the way that we can actually get people to travel less distance, people can cycle to work. We don't have to be um, so dependent on either a, a polluting car, which we probably won't have in 20 years' time because there'll probably be different forms of propulsion anyhow, uh, or um, we, we, we basically can use the new technologies as they come along. And I think we should be preparing much better for new technologies than we are. But how do, we, how do we actually design new policy for the future? Because I think the policy that we're creating now is for the now. It's not looking ahead in time. So how do we, how do we try and capture what's coming? That's, that's a hard one. That's what planners do. <laughs> you know, they, and, you know, you look back at some of Melbourne's terrific plans over the, the past century where they did, did look out into the future. You know, the old Board of Works plans, 28, was it, and 56 and all that. But do you the, think we're doing that now? Well, I don't want to be critical, but I think that the amount of work and detail that went into those early plans was vastly different to the amount of the work's gone into our, well, our new... And that's right across Australia. There's, an, there's an economic disconnect, I think, in the, you know, you, all our planned Melbournes and the, the economic underpinning of where we're going to spend the money to make the traffic patterns work and the transport and the infrastructure is just completely disconnected. And, and, and whilst it is, we are drifting to a to an to a to somewhere that we may get there and muddle our way. The livability but, is but dropping. But wouldn't it be better to get yeah, there with more 
yeah, I guess, Can decisiveness. I the, way, the way that I'd put it is we need to, as a community, work out what sort of city we want and then we've got to go ahead and build it. And we've got to make sure that any infrastructure spend we do is building that sort of city and not pointing in the other direction. And we are not doing that at the present time. So if we keep going where we're going, there are exceptional projects and we've talked about them. Um, but if we keep putting the majority of spend as, you know, fattening up the, the, the pipe to get everybody in the city, in 20 years' time, unless this paradigm changes, what's going on with this city? What's it like? What's it like to well, live in? I, I, I think that we might have partly already reversed that around a bit, but which is which I think is a good thing. Um, but if you keep just pushing more and more stuff into the CBD, well, you know the answer. We're going to be more congested. We're going to have more and more issues in the CBD. And I, I, I find that, you know, I love Melbourne. I love the CBD. But I tell you what, walking around there, I said spend a lot of time after RMIT, and walking around the streets around there is. You know, you don't feel as comfortable as you did, you know, 20 years ago. Would you want to be walking around the back streets of RMIT at 1.30 in the morning? And, you know, and the answer is some of the stuff you see there is, is difficult. Uh, the, the quality of the environment in Swanson Street is pretty poor. The top end of Burke Street is empty. It's, not like, the mall, it's not like when you were leaving that nightclub 20 years ago, Cam. Well, it's, it's probably arguably better than that. Was then, it starfish? But, uh, okay, so, all right. The and the inequity is going to keep growing because the more jobs and the more federation squares and art galleries we put in the centre of town, the more attractive this area is. And also, that money is no longer available for putting that stuff anywhere else. So we're going to just... The thing that planners rail against is these dormitory suburbs, but basically... Uh, and sprawl. Sprawl is only sprawl if you are basically not providing the services that people need nearby. I'm not particularly fussed about how big the city is. What I'm particularly fussed about is how far people have to travel to get to work and how far people have to travel to get to the services they need. And I think that if we keep bleeding all the good stuff out of the rest of the city, people are going to have to travel further and further. There'll be more pressure on government for uh, infrastructure. And as we... As they were saying in New York in 1960s, you can't build your way, uh, you know, you can't build your way out of congestion, and and it's proven. Marchetti's constant. If you want to look it up on the book, I did read that. It made sense. So so instead of this sort of drifting to hopefully getting there approach that we're sort of on, which we'll probably get there, but it might take longer than we hope and might cause more angst in the community than is needed. What's the single biggest and i'm going to try and pin you on this single biggest thing we could do first to shift into a more decisive future towards this vision of a polycentric or localized metropolis we did discuss this question um the you didn't the, give me an answer though <laughs> the, the, the the answer to me uh is a, basically a package of things. It's very easy to get up and say, yes, we're going to build this section new railway line or the section new freeway. It looks good. Everybody understands what it is. It's a much harder thing to understand a portfolio of things, people working from home differently, better internet provision, uh, better local, um, probably for this day and age, bus services until we have more, more automated vehicles. Um, we probably have different charging for things. Why does it cost uh, as much to build a building in Dandenong as it does pretty well in the CBD. There are differences, but they're not that great. So the, the why can't we actually have um, 
a portfolio of activities. Why don't we love buses? Buses are good public transport, you know, and they and they, um, and yet we have these. Uh, as a community, we have um, certain fixations about things. But if I was to say one thing that was going to make a difference, and that is that um, it's basically people understanding why we do things. And when the government comes forward with something, people come in and say, hang on for a sec, we know that's not going to work. It's the government actually checking with Infrastructure Victoria before they put a project out whether this is really good or not. Now, Infrastructure Victoria should never be the decision maker. It should always be the politicians. No one's voted for those guys. I think they do a great job, but no one's voted for them. So it should be the politicians making decision, but they should get that reference from the group that they created and saying, is this a good project? And I'd love to see that. And, and so that community, that, that sort of galvanisation of a vision for the city, trying to get that across this city you know, into people's homes is the key. Hard to do. People who live out in a new estate in Pakenham should probably be grumpy when a vast amount of money is spent in an area that is already over-serviced or well-serviced, okay? And we don't have that. People just, they don't read about it, they don't know about it, they, you know, they, they're basically not participants. That's the job of the media, it's the job of government, it's the job of people like ourselves, the job of planners, to actually get out there and actually push that. Cam, can I answer that question? Just the biggest thing we could do. I just, just thought of it, so don't laugh. We should have a competition. Invite six entries, say fifty thousand dollars each, a masked competition. We put it out to consultancies around the world, Alphabet, Google, I don't know anyone. Say this is what the city is now. Where can how can it be better? We absolutely sort of outsource it outside. We get those entries. We don't know who they're from, so we don't we don't we don't have a preference for that one, and we just. Get those new ideas. It's a good idea. We, I we heard, cross-pollinate from outside. I heard of a similar thing for the better apartment design guidelines and there's a $5 million price tag on it. So well, $5 million. Well, there's a leak one new prize to city development that's mm. given out and that's like $300,000. Mm. They give it every two years for great urban initiatives. Mm. So sorry for jumping in. Now, I've got a question. Peter, what has most what have, what have you changed your mind on? And Cam, you're going to be asked this next. <laughs> um, I, I don't think there's the formulation of these ideas in the book took th- thirty years of working and just then looking at things and saying, "Why the hell are we doing that?" Basically, um, so I don't think that there's been too many things. I think probably the speed with which automated vehicles would come in is probably a bit slower than I thought. Um, I think that um, the when I talk to people about it who are in senior positions, just generally their incredibly negative view about can we ever make really good jobs out there in the burbs? Why haven't I got a KPMG office in, in Dandenong? I don't think we have one. Um, and, and it's just they see this stuff as totally insurmountable. But unless we break that, unless we make the Dandenongs and the Monashes real mini CBDs, we're not going to achieve it. So I just... Perhaps to answer your question, it's probably just seeing the extent of the change that we have to make, and it's mostly in people's minds. Well, I've definitely changed my mind on the free tram. Uh, thanks for Peter's consultation. Um, I genuinely have changed my view on that. Um, 
I guess it's the speed of the capacity of the city to change, how quickly it can happen. It's all to me is this idea of a tipping point, where it doesn't. It can be over a decade goes from dormitory industrial Collingwood to you know whether you like it or not. It's pretty cool if you want it. Uh, yes, it comes Too with its for me, comes with its uh, you know negatives, but. The capacity of the city to change, if I think back over time, I, mean, I, I used to think, having been at Mervac in the 90s doing apartments, you couldn't do an apartment, you know, more than three, five Ks out of the CBD. Now they're everywhere. Now they're in the growth areas. You know, I've changed my mind about, you know, because it was always the mathematics wasn't going to work, the economics. So I suppose the economic reality of what people can afford and the space they can be and therefore what that means to people's choices to make a change in their life whether where they live and what they live in it can change quite quickly so now we have uh, podcast extra where we asked our guests and i asked jess and i volunteer some things about what we've seen listened to heard watched that's triggered our interest of late I've got, I've got okay. a, i've got a rip on okay. the 4th of march at 2 p.m i do my intermediary um, our surf at Urban Surf at Tullamarine. Please explain. There's a left-hand brake and a right-hand brake. I have to wear a helmet because the pool's so shallow and the wave is such a wedge that I'll probably end up grinding my head along the bottom of the pool. But it is a... It is a it's probably, arguably, according to online research I've done, probably the best wave pool in the world right now at Tullamarine. Peter, what are you? Uh, that's expect. What have you been listening to, watching? What? Well, mine aren't quite that exotic. I just read the Ross Garner, his latest one, uh, which is puts forward a very coherent argument about how we can use um, um, different forms of uh, renewable energy a lot better, and how we can actually tie that into uh, the. Uh, the new ways of doing things. I think the first three chapters are a bit tedious because he's looking back to what happened in the past and the last chapter is really summing it up. But those middle chapters where he actually talks about these sorts of industries and how we can use biomass and things like that, is actually, I think he's done it really well. So it's, it's a pretty good book. Jess, what have you been? Um, I've been going to a lot of events at M Pavilion. For those of you that don't know what that is, it's a um, Glen Merkett designed um, structure down in Queen Elizabeth Gardens, I think it's called, um, just down by the Yarra. It's a beautiful, beautiful space, lots of discussions about cities, um, city issues generally, urban design, architecture. It's a wonderful spot. Highly recommend. And actually, I think they've got a number of podcasts coming out from this season, so hmm. jump online and have a look at that. What about you, Pete? Uh, well, Jess, I had eight nights house-sitting in Singapore over the Christmas period, and I love Singapore and have been there many times. But what they're doing with their buildings, their spaces, their greening of Singapore is outstanding. They are putting hundreds of hectares of greenery uh, on top of what they've got. Their new buildings are sensational, much higher-quality architecture standards than what we have in Australia. And the, uh, the transport, they're putting in three new metro lines bang, just doing it. Uh, incredible place. Uh, very resilient people. Uh, incredible. I, so I everyone, that, everyone should go to Singapore. I heard that they're, they're measuring wastage in terms of the percentage of their... Um, percentage, the percentage of the land area of Singapore that doesn't catch its water and it's down to 3%. 
Very super efficient. There's the URA centre there, which is a, a three-storey building. It explains about the planning of Singapore, the history of planning and what they're doing. There's a whole lot of interactive uh, games you can play about you know how waste is created, what electricity does, how they're improving their reservoirs, their water system. And they are so conscientious about it because they have to be. Uh, and they're growing like topsy too. So It's their resilience program, I believe, that drives a lot of this to make sure that they're secure for water, secure for power. Well, Malaysia's always threatening to cut off their water and they're a very small place in with very big... They're surrounded by gorillas in terms of big countries, you know, tiny. So Singapore was outstanding. So, um, well, Jess, this is PX60. We've uh, reached another milestone. More to come, do you think? More to come. (laughs) (laughs) Peter, Cam, Jess, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful interview and thank you listeners for listening in your busy lives and please consider the uh, Urban Broadcast Collective, which we're part of. And also www.howtobuildacity.com. Did I add an extra W in there? I think I did. No, you got it. (laughs) You nailed it, Jess. So thanks, Peter. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. sunshine when she's gone only dark